This evening we will be exploring piti or rapture in our opening to this cycle of dependent liberation that we have begun. When I was nine years old, I was, uh, I lived in the Appalachian Mountains. I was born in the Appalachian Mountains and I was uh, uh, going from my grandmother's house. I'd been over there because uh, she had a TV and we did not have a television. So I would walk, it was within walking distance and I would walk to her house and watch television and then I walked back to my house and um, I was uh, uh, walking back to uh, an environment that had its challenges in many different ways. And so um, uh, uh, I was a very um, uh, sort of awake little boy in the sense of, you know, circumstances kept me alert, so I was awake in that sense that I was, I was, I was reflective and noticing things. But I, I can remember so clearly walking along the street, minding my business. I was actually thinking about uh, becoming a, a, a lawyer. This had been my little dream that when I would grow up that I would become an attorney, which by the way turned into nightmares when I didn't go to life law school. It took me about seven years to get over feeling guilty about not going to law school, having dreamed of it from such an early age. Thank goodness I didn't. <laughs> Would not have suited me as well as the Dharma. So there I am walking along, and it's just a normal afternoon, and suddenly there starts to be this feeling in my body Where's this coming from? It's very pleasant. I didn't think in terms of like pleasant and unpleasant. I thought in terms of wow. <laughs> and it was, it was a very wonderful feeling of well-being. And at first it had that quality of the gladdening mind, that this, the, the delight of mind that uh, Gil so beautifully took us through last night. And then it grew in intensity and became what, and, and uh, the Buddhist language is rapture. I, of course, didn't know that. I just knew this was great. And so unexpected. And what it felt like, actually, was a kind of blessing. Because it felt so much like um, an antidote to uh, you know, circumstances in a certain way. So very very uh, strong feelings of gratitude arose in me. And this, this feeling lasted, that I'm a little vague about, but I'm going to say 20 minutes or 30 minutes. I don't really remember that. I don't know how long it lasted. This set off a pattern in which spontaneously, under no particular set of conditions that I could ever determine, these moments of rapture would occur all through grade school, through middle school, through high school, even through college. And given all of the, uh, the high stimulation of college, you know, that's, uh, that was uh, amazingly good fortune. 
because you know, there's so many other things going on in your college years. And um, uh, to give you an example of that, I once, in my freshman year, I left a class, I went to a very large university, and I left a class that ended at 8 o'clock, and I was headed towards these steps. And uh, just before I got to the steps to go down, there were maybe 50 steps, quite a few of them, maybe more. I happened to notice the light hitting a tree. It was just a regular old tree. It was a regular old street light, for goodness sakes. There was nothing special about any of it. There I was. Stood there for the longest time as these, this feeling of rapture built in me as a feeling. Why? Very mysterious. And I, again, huge appreciation and as was always true, no sense that I possessed this, that I could ever have it again, that this was my birthright. And I had no story about any of this. And uh, then walking all the way back to my dorm, staying in my dorm for uh, uh, quite an extended period of time, it, w- it would uh, lessen and come back and then fade and fade and fade and be gone. So um, this would be my first conscious encounter with rapture. I would suspect that if many of you could remember uh, your childhood and its completion, you would have had, in fact, many, many experiences of gladdening the mind. Every single person in here, many times when the mind was in that state of gladdenness. Because there's, a, there's even in the Buddhist text, when there's a kind of... Uh, what I would call innocence, but uh, in the the commentaries they call it clear conscience and faith in the object. That one can go into this this rapturous state through just this clear conscience and the faith in the object. Faith in the object means this kind of intense uh, interest in. Not in a grabby way, but just giving yourself over to it. So I would say that Everyone in this room has had many experiences in your life of gladdening mind. The mind really feeling this gladness of mind. And also in your childhood at least, and, uh, uh, and for some of you I know your practice well, you've had a lot of experience with rapture. I mean, a few people in here I've know have just had extraordinary experiences with, with rapture in that way. And so we open to this uh, state of mind that uh, this quality of, of of experience that can happen, and as we do so, we want to open to it with respect and watching out for um, the arising of judging or comparing mind, because we can easily in this area get to thinking what we have or have had or isn't good enough, or we get to thinking, oh, this is what really practice is about, all of which would be such a misperception. As you recall, this entire cycle of liberation starts with suffering. It starts with suffering. It does not start in a happy place. It starts with suffering. This is... um, the quote I have at the beginning of Dancing with Life from uh, the Venerable Ajahn Chah. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering. That suffering we know well, right? The suffering that leads to more suffering. 
There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. This is a kind of um, a fundamental choice. And as being here, you've already made, at least for now, that choice. You've chosen to uh, be present for, available to, to deeply know the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. This is where we start. So there's like a fork in the road. And as Yogi Berra said, if you find a fork, if you come to a fork in the road, pick it up. We are in fact <laughs> picking up the fork, the fork that goes to the end of suffering. But the way out of suffering is the way through suffering. In our regular Vipassana practice, we, we look at the characteristics and, and, and use the uh, insight practice for seeing the, seeing the way that suffering occurs and how we participate so much in that. But as Gil pointed out last night, suffering, in addition to being the predicament, is the solution. Suffering is the immediate cause of faith to arise. This is paradoxical. Uh, Gil really captured how all this fits together very beautifully, and I certainly won't try to uh, uh, do another version of that tonight. But just to recall that, that, that suffering is the cause of faith. This is a, a key understanding of the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth that there is suffering. So many people think that the first noble truth is the cause of the second noble truth, that there is a cause of suffering. But that's not the way I understand the, the teachings at all. The, the, the suffering is the cause of faith. That we're not we're not doing a study, this retreat of the Four Noble Truths in depth. But it's a very, it's a very uh, important shift in consciousness that you, in the willingness to bear suffering, having the courage, kuer, the heart factor to bear suffering, allows you to have a new choice, to turn away from this repetition, this endless uh, uh, process of, of going through our identification, our thirst for things, and then finding the ultimate dissatisfaction after we've taken birth in it and, and find ourselves in suffering. This radical stepping away from that and going in a different direction with the same kind of cause. In fact, this process that we can use from the suffering by our nobility, the nobility of enduring this first noble truth. In a more accurate description, if I'd had the nerve to do it when I was writing Dancing with Life, I would have done it this way, but I didn't have the nerve. A better understanding from, uh, of, of the of four noble truths would be to call them the four ennobling truths. Because in the Pali, it's, it's a verb language. It's not a noun-based language. And it really makes sense then, you know, doesn't it? 
the ennobling truths. So this ennobling truth of suffering leads to faith. When we can stay mindful with compassion, this compassionate mindfulness allows us to turn towards towards the liberation, towards liberation. Uh, the Venerable Samedo uh, uh, talks about this as the good of suffering. The good of suffering. Whew. Nice to know there's good in the suffering because we have no choice but to experience it in ourselves and in others. Going back to the Satipatthana Sutta, to know experience within ourselves and to know it in other and in ourselves and in other. And so... Through this movement towards faith, this confidence, which I would have you consider as opening to possibility. I feel as though what we do as facilitators in your journey is help you hold the possibility of your own liberation. More than any particular advice or any kind of uh, uh, particular suggestion we can make. It's our hearts holding with your hearts the possibility of liberation. This is so powerful. In Dante's Divine Comedy, when, uh, when, he, when he gets to uh, the gates of hell, over at the gates of hell is the sign that says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Why would we abandon hope? Hope is not used in the Buddhist language either. It's just not there. The reason I would suggest is that hope has this uh, leaning into, this grabbing after, this not staying where we are, not being willing to endure it, not being willing to start where we are, not to move through. So it is the, the, the sense of our possibility. We don't know for sure, but something's drawn us to this practice. There's something that seems worthwhile. There's some feeling of, of well-being that comes to us. Whatever level of practice we have heard in every single person in the practice discussions, some reference to Maybe you didn't use the words, but some reference to well-being, something, something wholesome being felt in the practice. And, and so this, this sense of, of confidence is a confidence in the possibility, this willingness to see for ourselves, to see what is possible. It doesn't take all that much faith. It really doesn't. Because we can always say, well, compared to what else? What are my other alternatives? Because we've tried most of those alternatives, haven't we? And thus we're here. And so it's just that, that sense of that, that it can be very modest, but there's a clear intention that this is a priority in my life. And that willingness then from that faith to show up gives us this possibility of just through practice, just through reflection, to gladden the mind, as Gail described last night. When we gladden the mind, we're not really creating something. We are getting out of the way 
or we're coming home to something that already exists, in my view. The mind's natural state is this one of delight. When it is, when it, when we are with it, when we're with it, the mind wants to be like that. Otherwise, how would it ever happen? Could we really create? I don't think so. So we come to a natural state, and this gladdening of the mind, in the uh, in the many of the commentaries, is referred to as weak rapture. So that the the rapture that we think of rapture is strong rapture, and this is weak rapture. And I like that because uh, for many of us they're very close together, and sometimes not that distinguishable. Depends on your your personality, your your nervous system, uh, all of these different conditions, much larger than we can control. They can they can be very close together and not. And the people can have this frustration about, well, I've not known any rapture, when in fact they have, but it's, it's, it's got a quiet form and so it's missed. Because we all have these quiet moments of rapture or very brief moments of rapture or flickering uh, feelings of rapture that are easily missed, very easily missed. So when we are there in this, this gladness of mind, this delight of mind, there is a lightness to the mind because it's 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 feeling good. It feels good. It's it feels free. It's not hindered. The hindrances aren't so present. That doesn't mean they're gone, but they're not so present. So it's got a buoyancy. This mind, this gladdened mind, all of which we can easily notice in our practice. Each one of us. There is an energetic pulse for those of you who feel energy. There's an energetic uh, uh, pulse. Uh, to this gladdened mind, even if we're sick, even if we're in physical pain, when this mind uh, achieves this, uh, attains is a better word, this this gladness state, th- that energy is there, even though the body energy can be just almost non-existent. This, it is there in my experience, once again I will say. And there is a certain brightness to the mind that can be detected. So to give you a little, just in terms of regular life, uh, a a feeling of this delight. This is from Wu Men. And it's called 10,000 Flowers in Spring. 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. That's what the gladdening mind feels like. It's just like, this is, this is a good moment in my life. Again, the circumstances don't have to be so great. This is a good moment in my life. And so as we uh, look at it, uh, we, we might notice that the mind has a kind of flexibility when it's in this state of gladness. It can have a kind of pliability. It's moldable to fit an object of our attention. So flexible means that it can, it can move 
to different circumstances that it can it can adjust it can uh, adjust a lot of different objects of meditation we might choose it doesn't it doesn't need just one fixed object it can do it can it can be present with this gladness with a lot of objects it can have attention on objects it can be stay mindful of and it's pliable it can fit into a different uh, set of mental circumstances and it's placeable you put it there and it's there. It doesn't bounce off of it. It doesn't push and pull at it. It rests in it. It's placeable. So these are things that I notice for myself in my practice in this way. And so the hindrances are lessened. The well-being, that sense of well-being is pervasive. You can invite that well-being to grow and it will grow, become more pervasive. This is one of the things about the breath meditation that um, I feel as though we don't seem to have found the way to really um, uh, uh, communicate very well. When we're with the breath, we can notice the breath in a way that will gladden the mind. We can notice it in a reflection of this is the breath of life. This very breath has given me life. We can notice the ease of the relaxation. We can notice the energy of the inhale. And, and we can notice it from this kind of well-being that Gil was pointing out last night. The same well-being that, oh, I didn't kill anyone today. Oh, I've got a breath in this moment. It's an inclining of the mind. You've heard me use this phrase over and over again. And you will for two more, three more weeks of this inclining the mind, just noticing, oh, yeah, this breath is this breath is peaceful. You know, I'm not struggling for this breath. Just the slightest thing can get us into this this uh, well-being in relation to breath. In addition to breath, being out into nature, we can just notice the beauty of nature and and feel that gladness of mind, and then in, in, in increase it by. Uh, inviting it to spread in the body. So as this, as, this, uh, as this feeling emerges more and more strongly, we start to have these more spontaneous experiences around the mind being content. Sometimes that can t- take the place of some kind of physical unwinding because there, we're, the mind feels safe enough that it can be there with the body and the body unwinds. We, we can feel it as though it were movement or we can be very still and it's happening in the mind somehow. It can be an emotional unwinding that is happening from some past trauma or some past difficult memory. And there, likewise, uh, one teacher says that it's really the brain stem that's letting loose of things. One teacher is very fond of that. And other teachers have said to me that it is the body as the storehouse. That is, when the mind starts to be more content, it's, there's resources available to let this, this kinds of spontaneous energetic experiences happening. And then at some point, and that can be immediately, or it can be over a number of days, or a number of uh, minutes in the sit, or whatever it is, we start to feel the energy intensify from a weak rapture to uh, a stronger rapture. And what to call this rapture is uh, of some debate. Some people call it joy. I don't, I don't particularly like to call it joy. Um, I like calling it happiness. 
But mostly I like calling it rapture because it's, uh, it, rapture captures the uh, bigness. Even if it's quiet, it's, there's still a bigness to it. It's got a kind of roughness to it, rapture does. It's rough. It's, um, it's taking up a lot of room. <laughs> and uh, to me, this feeling has a kind of uh, electrical, neuroelectrical kind of experience to it. That it definitely feels energetic. You may have a different experience of it. But that's how I would describe it. I would point out to you that it is happening in the mind. It is being generated by the mind, not by the body. Although it is felt uh, to a large degree somewhere in the body oftentimes. Not always. Sometimes it really feels all mental. Uh, but it's often felt in the body. We can get a little confused by that because we look back in that place in the body trying, well, I want, that to, I want to feel that in my body again. And so we push and pull on that part of our bodies trying to have that experience again and not so successful. It is born of seclusion, it is said. There's a, a chant that, I don't know that you've ever participated in that particular chant, but it is born of seclusion and a kind of mental quietude, this rapture. There is a strong delight in just connecting to whatever the mental object is, the breath. Uh, it could be looking at something, looking at a color object, gazing at a candle. But just that connection, the, the satisfaction of being fully connected creates this rapturous feeling. As one experiences that connection more deeply, that actually brings what's called sukha, the, a, 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 a more refined state of mind, a less coarse state of mind than rapture. And, and this is when I, I use this language about the, the connection and then uh, the feeling the experience directly. This is again from classical texts that describe this this way, but, but I would confirm that in my own experience base. And then um, this is a poem that, uh, that again talks about this kind of spontaneous arising of this. This is by W.B. Yeats. My 50th year had come and gone. I sat, a solitary man, in a crowded London shop, an open book and an empty cup on the marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed, and twenty minutes more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. My body of a sudden blazed, and twenty minutes more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. This, this is this kind of rapturous feelings. It's not that widely known that when the poet T.S. Eliot was a freshman at Harvard, uh, he was walking down the street, this is the beginning of his freshman year, and this happened to him, just out of nowhere. So, um, uh, they can, they can. Uh, this this feeling can come when we are in seclusion, 
or when there's a kind of clearness to the mind in the text that calls it clear conscience and faith in the object as I said earlier this clear conscience the clear conscience is a kind of um, uh, not seeking advantage not, not after anything not running from anything just here just here and that's why the gladdening of the mind which has that feeling to it works so well there are um, various maps of these uh, states of rapture, but the one that is in the Theravadan system is also, for those of you who have a yoga background, at least in the Shivananda yoga system, these same states of rapture are described in very similar language, which is pretty interesting in of itself. And there's, it's in the broad terms, there's five of them. There is a kind of what's called a minor rapture, uh, which is also called weak rapture or lesser thrill rapture. (laughs) And it is when there's like a goosebump feeling on the body or the hair will stand on end. You will feel a tingling in the hair or literally the hair stand on end. I have a good friend who's been meditating for about as long as I have in this Theravadan tradition. And uh, he has, on numerous occasions, when sitting on these long retreats, had that experience of his hair standing up. And it won't go down. It's like the electricity has made it stand up. You know, you can do that with... And it, it literally, the hair is standing up. Uh, there's a kind of low buzz through the body. And this is one thing that I think is often missed, is that little low buzz. It's like a... It's really a low buzz. I don't know quite how to describe it. It's like if there was a kind of uh, a, a massage device that was put on your feet and there was just the slightest vibration that went through your whole body. Just a low buzz. Or if, if uh, like if you, you know, I don't know if you ever put your finger in a socket or something, got a little shock. It's this little, little very, it's like a tenth of that shock of that low buzz feeling. And uh, maybe some of you are laughing because that happened to you or just the idea of it. It happened to me. And um, uh, that wasn't the worst of my experience with electricity. Picked up a 220 one time. I was lucky to live. So um, uh, you can feel very charged with this minor rapture. And you're, you've got a lot of energy and you may come in to interview and say, you know, I've got so much energy, I can't sleep. Or I sleep for a few hours and then I just wake up. And the teacher will say to you, you know, on retreat, that sometimes we don't need so much sleep. <laughs> so that's the, that's the response that will often happen to that. The second kind of rapture is this uh, rapture called momentary rapture. And this is described as the rapture rushing through the body with a streak of intensity, like flashes of lightning. And it doesn't last long. There may be a series of them, but they're quick and they're over. Um, some people say they're, they, they happen quick because they're so intense that, that you can't take them for very long. Other people say, no, it's just their nature that they, that, that's, they are they are sort of um, momentary uh, in, in nature, not have anything to do with how intense they are. The reason I mention that is because, again, uh, in, in my 
experience with yogis, people report experiences that I think have this quality of momentary rapture, but it's very small and it's just not being noticed as such. And it's not so important that we label it. It's only our ideas that cause us to get so caught in it. We also want to be very respectful of rapture. It is. Uh, it can be uh, very taxing to the nervous system. We can get very tired. It can sort of uh, do in our ability to sit or to have mindfulness and all. Be very respectful. I once was doing a practice on a retreat, and I started having these flashes of momentary rapture. Was uh, and uh, they were very painful to the body. They were way too intense. I was not practicing skillfully for what I was practicing. I was in over my head. And the nature and the way I was in over my head was beyond the experience of the teachers I was working with. And so nobody knew what to do. And so it was, it was, it was, it was difficult and difficult for a period of time. So we want to, beyond just the time of the retreat. So we want to be very respectful of rapture and not try to grab hold of it, just as you would not choose to grab hold of a 220. But people get fascinated and it's very hard to let go sometimes, or they go for more, or squeeze tighter or something. So minor rapture, momentary rapture, showering rapture, the third kind of rapture. Also, uh, one person describes it as descending rapture or going down rapture. And this is when it breaks through the body like waves, this kind of rapture. It is considered a more refined rapture than the first two. And uh, you can, this can go on for some time, these feelings of rapture. Again, they can be very small, and you may have had this experience and not noticed it. Uh, may have had it a number of times and not particularly noticed it, but you may be recognizing it now. And I know some of you are having experiences right now that you will recognize as this experience. It can be occurring in one place in the body, or it can be through the whole body. It can move in different places in the body. This this wave-like feeling, just very up and down, this coming down through the body. Um, again, very, uh, they can be very small, very large. The fourth kind of rapture is this uh, so-called uplifting rapture. And this is when the body starts feeling very, very light. And once again, I've had numerous yogis who, have no, who did not think of themselves as having any rapture report this experience of how light the body feels. It can feel so light that you will swear you're floating. I was at uh, Yucca Valley one year when I was uh, just starting to teach. This was you know, 14, 15 years ago. And I was sitting up on the platform like this. And someone else was going to be doing the top, but I was just sitting there and suddenly this body became so light that I literally reached down with my hand to touch. This went on for a while. And uh, then I suddenly felt this wave and I said, earthquake. (laughs) And then about later, the earthquake hit. That was because I was so light that I, like animals, you know, animals detect earthquakes much faster than we do. 
that I could, I could feel the movement first before we actually felt it in the hall. It was most amazing experience. I was not like in some deep concentration state. They, that you do not have to be in some profound deep state. It's just, a, it's just the mind has gotten collected and unified in a certain way that it's very sensitive. That's all. It's, it's very normal. It's within two standard deviations of regular experience, within regular experience. So um, uh, the you know the the claim is that that in fact one can levitate uh, from this kind of rapture, and you can believe or not believe that. And these people have all these things they'll write and tell about that. I don't take a point of view about that. And then the the fifth kind of rapture is prevailing rapture, and this is when your whole body is enveloped in this these these. Uh, intense feelings of some kind. It's described as being like a flood or like a boulder that fills a, a whole a cavern that it just like, it's complete. Your body is just encased in this rapturous state. And um, again, it can be uh, uh, quite fulfilling or can be overwhelming in time. We can get, we can get our nervous system can have, be ready for it to end, and it doesn't end. So there's, again, be very respectful of this. From my perspective, and I've deliberately told you about some of my experiences, and uh, some out of many. So I have a lot of experience with this, this uh, thing we call rapture. From my experience, if I could only have one of the two, I would have gladdening of the mind any day of the week. I would always choose gladdening of the mind. Gladdening of the mind uh, creates, in my experience, the necessary condition for both uh, samadhi concentration, the jhana practices, going into access concentration, then into first, second, third, and fourth jhanas, and it creates going into uh, the, the vipassana. This single factor of having concentration just being out there by itself uh, does not does not uh, uh, seem that rewarding to me. Now, when concentration is there as part of the, the jhanas, there's a greater experience, there's a greater context. That's another matter, but it's that's that's that has a whole other feeling tone to it than just concentration. We're we're moving towards this more integrated state as we've gone from from this faith to gladness to now concentration. But when we isolate it like this, beware of reifying it. And to remember that it is, uh, it is a, it is a, uh, it's part of an experience. It's not a destination. This is just a place we're passing through towards our destination, which is liberation. And certainly it is coarse as an experience compared to sukha and this, and even one-pointedness, this one-pointed ekagata, that this, when the mind's in total equilibrium, far, far superior. So uh, when, when, the one, when sometimes people are lamenting that, the, you know, not having more of those kinds of experiences, I will point out, but look at this sukha you have. Look at this equanimity you have much finer experience, much more uh, a subtle 
uh, level of consciousness. There's, again, because a number of you have a yoga background, the this this rapture as I've described it tonight is is a little different than what is meant by Kundalini for the Kundalini arising. That's a that's slightly different thing. It's got a it's got I would give a whole different structure to that, but some of the factors, some of the feelings might be the same. But I would I would I would give that a different structure. And again, for those of you in yoga, this Shaktipat feeling. I would I would give as a it's bear all energetic experiences but of a different nature so not, not trying to don't try to smesh everything together treat each thing as its own thing when you're practicing in more than one tradition and uh, I would also uh, those of you who come from a Christian background and uh, even from uh, uh, like uh, ecstatic dance of various kinds Sufi dancing or African dance. Those kinds of uh, trance-like ecstasy states are different than what we're talking about here. These, these are particular states that have been induced through the mind. And again, treat them within our own way of practicing so we don't, we don't confuse ourselves. The shadow side of rapture is that we can suddenly think that this gives us some sort of status in our own mind or something. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And, uh, and, and on the other hand, it can lead to uh, comparing and judging ourselves or others and can lead to a competitive mind state. We can, um, we can also feel as though if something like this has happened to us, then we must be special. Just as with an insight. Uh, it's, uh, it's very painful uh, to uh, encounter a yogi that, who has somewhere on, uh, in a retreat had a big insight and uh, the way they uh, recognized it or the way they, what they heard a teacher say make, led them to feel as though that they were, they were now really special because they had had this insight of arising and passing or some other insight. And then to have to, uh, to, for them to go on, there has to be a disabusement of that specialness, because that specialness represents clinging. It's taking birth. And it's in the way if something else would happen. And one of the things that they will often do, and all of us are subject to this, is try to get back some experience. You know, so we spend, uh, I mean, I've met people who have spent, you know, many retreats trying to get back to an experience that they had at their first or second retreat, or even under a drug that they're trying to, to uh, force an experience in. And it's in the way of that ever happening, ironically. I have a very good friend who laughs about this, who's a very dedicated practitioner, who uh, for years would come on retreat trying to duplicate a memory. You know? Maybe not so useful. And... Uh, uh, we can certainly create the selfing that then has to be let loose of. One way to um, think about this is um, what I consider to be a, a, a misperception about what the, this, this uh, journey of dependent liberation is. I would not call it a hero's journey. I would not call it a hero's journey. This is um, uh, uh, that, that's uh, to 
me a bit unfortunate that it's become that way because it brings up the warrior class idea, the warrior. I'm going to conquer this. The Buddha tried that. You know, he was from the warrior clan. He forced himself and had a natural gift for uh, highly concentrated states with two different teachers. He went from one, accomplished everything with, in terms of concentrated states with that teacher. We even know the names of them. And with the second teacher. And again, it wasn't what he was looking for. So then he tried to conquer the body by starving the body. And it almost killed him and got him nowhere. It was only when he learned to relax attention, to relax the mind, to sit with a relaxed mind and soften into experience that he was able to sit under the Bodhi tree and find his liberation. So, and rather than being heroes, we're surrendering. We're surrendering. We're letting go. We're abandoning. We're abandoning. So much heroic uh, effort in the surrendering and letting go and abandoning, but there is no hero. There is no hero. There is no conqueror in that sense. I, I hope this is uh, palpable to you because on these long retreats we have such opportunity to uh, surrender, to let go, to abandon, to be in gratitude, to be in appreciation. In light of uh, this uh, treating our experience as, uh, as, a, as a, a surrender rather than as a hero, I wanted to uh, read you a story from uh, an Aikido teacher, a fellow named Terry Dobson. I first met Tija in, in an Aikido dojo. I've done this a long time ago, 26 years ago or something like this. Tija was a wonderful Aikidoist. I was not. <laughs> and uh, I was just getting started in this at a at much too late of an age, at middle age, to start Aikido. But I had a wonderful time in Aikido. And um, I kept looking for someone, uh, some teacher, who's, who's, the way that they energetically met the body would really match mine. I was so convinced that I could uh, improve a whole other level if I could just be met on this level. And uh, finally, this, uh, we had all sorts of really incredible people wander through the dojo. I mean, really, like, amazing people of what they could do energetically. But one time, finally, Terry Dobson came back from Japan where, and uh, I taught in our dojo. And this was my one and only time that I ever got to study with him because he died soon after. And this is a story about his coming to his own realization about not being a hero, but surrendering. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty. A few housewives, housewives with their kids in tow. Some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and the dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. 
The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing, and he was big, drunk, and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle she was not harmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The laborer kicked, aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole at the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its, uh, out of its station. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, in pretty good shape. I had been putting in a solid eight hours of keto training nearly every day for the past three years. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. Trouble was, my martial arts skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. That's really one of the beauties of Aikido, is this uh, no violence. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said to myself, getting to my feet. People are in danger, and I don't have I, and if I don't do something fast, they will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized a chance to focus his rage. Ah, he roared, a foreigner, you need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter, computer, commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart. But he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. All right, he hollered. You're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A split second before he could move, someone shouted, Hey! It was ear-splitting. I remember the strangely joyous, lifting quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he s suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left. The drunk spun to his right. We both stared down a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his seventies, this tiny gentleman sitting there, immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delightfully at the laborer, as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk to me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clacking wheels. Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his socks. 
The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking, he asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Flecks of spittle splattered on the old man. Okay, that's wonderful, the old man said. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out into the garden, and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down, and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree, and we worry about whether it will ever recover from those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree had done better than I expected, though, especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It is gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. He looked up at the laborer, his eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the man's face began to soften, his fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmons too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home. I don't got no job. I am so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks. A spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. Standing there in well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy-righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetic. My, my, he said, this is a difficult predicament. Sit down, sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. Each of us is each of those people in this description, this essay. Each of us. We're that drunk. We're, we're this, this warrior that we're going to make things right for our own self or for the, for the sangha here or the kitchen or whatever it is. We're the old couple. We're the woman with the baby. Our minds go through each of these experiences. We confront that rage in us. We feel that loss in us. Sometimes it takes that we go to fear because we can't stand the sorrow. And yet, there's also this part of us that can gladden the mind, just as the old man did for the laborer. We can gladden our own mind. We can move into a gentleness through appreciation for just what's here now, just surrendering to what's here now, abandoning our holding on to the sorrow or to the to the anger or to the confusion or to the disappointment with something about our practice. We can abandon, we can let go of all of this. Surrender. And 
just be there in this kindness. This kindness is a well-being if we notice. If we notice, oh, in this moment, the mind's not torn apart over anything. Just this moment, it may be a few seconds. Oh, that's the gladdening of the mind, just there. And we can let that gladdening spread so that there's a feeling of gladness. And then this mind that's placeable, that's flexible, that's moldable, that we can just rest Rest in whatever experience of breath or whatever it is we're working with as our object and invite this collection and unifying of the mind, gathering it in, as Heather said the, at the beginning of the retreat, and then becoming one with the experience, just resting in it, letting that whatever that is that's like the matted hair, the dirty matted hair, letting that rest in our own collected unified gladness. It's open to us. What, it, what we have as an experience after that isn't so much our business. This is in the range of our choice. And then what happens is all these big circumstances. But in this, uh, this coming day, let's, let's see if we can open with this, this more quiet, this more gladdening, just being more available. Not so much doing, just being available. Let's sit for a moment. Note the delight in this moment of stillness. Feel the mind's delight in the quiet, in the stillness, just now. Turn to the breath. Feel just one breath as a gift of life. Notice the delight in the mind when we abandon and surrender to just knowing breath. This is the way to concentration. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.